friends, welcome. A very friendly welcome to Daily Power Parsha. This is our daily look at the Torah reading. So this week we have a super special, super duper special Torah portion, which is called Lech Lecha. Lech Lecha is God's call to Abraham to move, to pack up, leave his house, his father, leave his land, his father's house, his birthplace, and go to sites unseen, to places unchartered, to destinations unyet disclosed. And Abraham follows faithfully God's call. This is one of the major tests of Abraham. Will he follow God into the unknown? And he demonstrates his, his willingness to follow. Um, one thing that I want to mention, which I did not mention yesterday, the words lech lecha are very strange. God says to Abraham in the beginning of the parasha, the Torah portion, lech lecha me'artzacha, lech lecha. Go, it, lech means go, lecha means to you. So if we want to translate it literally, it literally means go to you from your land, which doesn't make any sense. It should just say go from your land, like leave your land. What's this go to you from your land? The whole, the, the phraseology just doesn't make any sense until you read the commentaries and you realize that God was telling Avram, God was telling Abraham, the journey is not going to be one of leaving your true self. It's not really abandoning who you are. You're breaking up. You're breaking up a bit, Rabbi. Hold on. Can you hear me now? Am I back? Yes. You were just, you were in and out a little bit. Perfect. I'm always in and out a little bit. I'm just saying. <laughs> Even in real life. <laughs> Kidding. So, Lech Lecha means that as you go on your journey, you will discover who you truly are. And I mentioned this yesterday, but I didn't connect it with the words Lech Lecha. Lech, again, just to, so you know the, the words. Lech means go. Lecha means to you. What does go to you? Sometimes the journey, the journeys as, as we explore and journey outward, we discover who we are inside. One of my favorite books when I was younger was called The Alchemist. You know The Alchemist, that book? Pablo Kelo or something like that. I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name. Anyway, it's a story about a guy who goes on a search for something magical and ultimately discovers the treasure inside. It's like the famous story about the guy who, was, who had a dream about a treasure under a bridge in the big city. And he goes to the bridge in the big city and he starts digging. And the guard says, what are you doing? He says, I'm digging for a treasure. He says, why? Because I had a dream. He's like, you had a dream. I had a dream that on, under Moshe, the, the shoemaker's house, there was a treasure in such and such city. And he realized, that's my house. I'm Moshe, the, 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 the shoemaker. Like, oh my gosh. So he goes home and he digs under his own house and he finds a treasure. Sometimes we need to go somewhere else to discover what we've had all along. Now, you could say that's unfortunate and I might agree with that. Like we should, if only we realized the treasures that we already had without needing to drive ourselves crazy, but such is the process. So God tells Avram, Lech Lecha. It's only by journeying forth. It's only by leaving your comforts your comfort zones and, 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 and what is comfortable that you'll truly and honestly discover who you really are. And I think this is a message for us in life, right? It's when we challenge ourselves. It's when we take on things that we might be apprehensive of that we truly grow. And not, not that we become someone else, but we truly uncover the depths of the strength that we had inside. 
If we always stay comfortable, we're not going to grow. I once heard Rabbi Dr. Torsky, a blessed memory, share the following. He said, how is it? What, what example did he use? He used a crab, I think. Crab? A turtle? A lobster? Maybe a lobster. I don't know. Some creature. I have to look back and, and try to see if I can find it. So this creature, whichever one it is, grows, or what happens, they grow big and they have a crusty exterior shell and they push against that shell and it becomes uncomfortable and because it becomes uncomfortable, it breaks open and then there's no shell and then it grows a new shell but in a larger space, a larger capacity that it can grow into again. So the process of growth happens by feeling uncomfortable and then breaking out of that discomfort. So he was joking, he was talking about like how we try to numb our pain or discomfort. Like the, what we do as human beings nowadays is we mask our discomfort. Like I'm not, feeling, I'm not feeling so well, so let me take something, let me, you know, let me try to make it feel better. As opposed to feeling the pain and growing because of the pain. Anyway, that's, that was his approach as a psychiatrist. That was his, uh, his takeaway. But my takeaway is sometimes when we challenge ourselves, that's when we grow. We have to push against those hard surfaces, push against the contours of our personality, of our, of our comfort zones, of our experiences. We push against that that we can have a true breakthrough, not to discover that we're someone else, but to discover the depth of who we really are. Okay, so that's a bit of an opening into Lech Lecha. We read yesterday about, which was our first foray into the Torah portion, we read about how God tells Avram to go to this uncharted territory. He goes with his wife and his nephew Lot and his possessions and the people that had been inspired by him and they go to the land of Canaan. The Canaanites were living there, although they had not been always there. They were there then and there was a famine. So he goes to Egypt and in Egypt, the whole deal was Sarah's abduction, Sarah's abduction. Sarai's abduction, because her name had not been changed yet. Anyway, long story short, it all works out. Everyone's safe and happy and extremely wealthy. This takes us to the third reading. So I'm going to share my screen with you, and we're going to jump right into the action. Okay. Third reading, again, Lech Lecha, go to yourself. Reading 3, Genesis chapter 13, verse number 5. And also Lot, who went with Avram, Abram, had flocks and cattle and tents. In other words, Lot the nephew, due to his proximity to his uncle, who had been rewarded greatly, Lot also had his own, his own, he had amassed his own wealth, which came in the form of flocks and cattle. Remember, they didn't have cars then. So you couldn't have a Bentley, a Maserati, uh, uh, going to mention now um, a Tesla. Maybe that's looking a little less pricey, but whatever. So he didn't have a flock of, uh, or a fleet of vehicles. He had flocks and cattle. That's what he had. That was an illustration of wealth. So Lot, the nephew, was also wealthy. Let's continue verse 6. And the land did not bear them to dwell together. It was difficult for Abram and his, and his nephew Lot to, to dwell together. For their possessions were many and they could not dwell together. This town ain't big enough for the both of us. Verse 7, And there was a quarrel between the herdsmen of Abram's cattle and between the herdsmen of Lot's cattle. And the Canaanites and Perizzites were then dwelling in the land. So what does that mean? There was a quarrel. The land wasn't big enough. There was a quarrel. The Canaanites and Perizzites were living there. What is the Torah really trying to say? It's like saying all these 
disjointed sentences, but what's really going on here? Here's the story as pieced together by the commentaries, the Midrash, the Talmud, etc. The story is like this. They each had a tremendous number of animals. And Lot would let his animals graze and eat of land, property, fields, and farms that were not his. Because he reasoned, look, God has promised this land to Abraham and his descendants, to my uncle and his family. I'm family. This is our land, or it will be our land eventually. So I'm taking a bit of a prepayment, right? It's my land anyway, so the animals are going to enjoy. What's the big deal? Whereas Abraham's uh, shepherds, Abraham told the shepherds, "Uh uh-uh, not at all. Don't do this because this is not our land yet. You have to respect other people's property. No stealing, no theft, right? No, uh, No letting the animals graze. So he would put a muzzle on the animals or whatever they would put on the animals to make sure they didn't eat of anyone else's food. So when they got to a field that was public, land that was public use, it wasn't, didn't belong to anybody, or his own property, they ate there. When, when it wasn't their land, they didn't eat there. So there was a, a, a moral and ethical, ideological distinction and, and dispute between Abraham and Lot, or between his herdsmen and, and, and the other guy's herdsmen, between their two uh, shepherds. Because Abram said the Canaanites and Prezites were dwelling in the land. In other words, even though we'll eventually get it, but who's living there now? The Canaanites and the Prezites. And we can't steal. Lot said, no, it's going to be ours. So we're taking a prepayment. So it became, it got to a breaking point. Do you know how disputes happen? You know, like it starts off with a little dispute and then eventually it gets big. And it gets so big that at some point you don't even remember why you're fighting in the first place. Yeah, present company excluded. Obviously, like, we don't have such uh, faribles like that. We don't have such disputes. But, you know, it happens in life where people, you know, this little thing happens, a little thing happens, and before you know it, uh, no one's talking to each other. It's a big, it's a big, it's a big blow up. It's a big blow up. What's it? It's about uh, a little thing. It's about, you know, a phone call. It's about Erdsman. It's a, yeah, little things become big things. So this sounds like a silly dispute. The animals eat, they don't eat. Whatever. So you're, you're, let your animals not eat. Why, why do you know you have to go to go to war with the other guy that has a different opinion? But that's what happens sometimes. That's what happens. Sarah, do you have a question or yeah? Yeah, is faribles like a Yiddish word? Faribble, yeah, faribble? yeah. Faribble okay. is a um, a Yiddish word that means sort of like a contentiousness, like a fight. Yeah. So it's like it's 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 the it blows up, it expands. The nature of dispute and conflict is it starts off really small. It's like a crack in your windshield, right? Yeah, one day you're driving. It's happened to me before. One day you're driving, and you're like, huh, I see like a little, like, a, like when the sun shines, I see a little bit of reflection. I don't know how that happened. Maybe a, 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 a truck or something or another car kicked up a pebble when someone was driving on the highway one day, and it creates a little nick in the glass. Well, the nature of glass is the moment it's compromised, from that moment on, it's only headed one direction. It's only going to become bigger. Um, yeah, you got to take care of that before it becomes a real crack and a real... So a little... Um, I forget what they call it. A little... Um, not a crack. They call it something Shatter? else. Shatter? No, no. Before it shatters. It's a little... Um, there may or may not be a word. I thought there was a word for it, but I can't, I can't remember it. 
whatever, a little, uh, little blemish in the thing can make a big crack. So a little blemish, a little, a little uh, fissure in, in a relationship can end up becoming a big, a big deal. So Avram says to Lot the following, verse 8. And Avram said to Lot the following, look, let's st- time out, stop, stop, let's stop the fight. Please let there not be, let, please let there be no quarrel between me and between you and between my herdsmen and between your herdsmen. For we are kinsmen, for we are kinsmen. We're family, we're mishpacha. I don't want to fight with you. Oh. I, I don't want you to fight with me. Let's oh. not fight. Right? Let's not fight. It's not good. It's not good for us to fight. Avram says, is not all the land before you? In other words, there's so much land here. Why, why are we living on top of each other so that we're noticing each other's, um, you know, idiosyncrasies and then getting upset about it? Let's create some distance. Let's just each go our own way. So Avram says to Lot to his nephew, please part from me. If you go left, I will go right. If you go right, I will go left. I'll let you choose. You go wherever you want and I'll make sure just to be a little bit, a little bit away. Avram takes the mature approach. Let's not keep on fighting. This is not healthy. It's not productive. I don't want to do it. I hope you don't want to do it also. Let's create some boundaries. Let's create some space. If we're not constantly all over each other so then we won't we won't be fighting just create a little distance it'll be healthy for the relationship by the way every relationship typically needs a little bit of distance respect distance it's a good thing rabbi yeah was was there land for the taking Mm. yeah 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 there was land there was land. Yeah, I mean, people, there were, it was under, you know, general dominion for, in some places. Like it says, the Canaanites and priests were dwelling in the land. So yeah, I'm sure they had some sort of government or some, I don't know if government was the right word, but some sort of, you know, system. But there was plenty of land. There was plenty of land to go around. So verse 10, and Lot raised his eyes and he saw the entire plain of, of the Jordan, that it was entirely watered. What that means is that it was um, irrigated. It was uh, lush. It was very fertile. Before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, all that talk about foreshadowing uh, later events, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you come to Tsar. Basically, he saw a part of the land, he saw that plain that was really lush and really just very fertile land. Beautiful land. Like, like Gan Eden, like Gan Hashem, like the Garden of the Lord. It's like beautiful. Like the land of Egypt. Land of Egypt, when you come to Tsar, that was a place in Egypt that was also very lush and beautiful. So, this is what's going on. This is what Lot sees. You know, he pulls out the map. Where should I move? Hmm, where should I go? He finds a place. And Lot chose for himself the entire plain of the Jordan. And Lot traveled from the east. And they parted from one another. Okay, so this is the moment where the two relatives, uncle and nephew, go their own separate ways. You have to understand, this is a big move. Lot, ever since his father died, tragically at a young age, Lot, the nephew, had been with his uncle. His uncle was basically like his father figure. And here they were separating. It's a big big deal. 
um, Abraham dwelt in the land of Canaan, which would become the land of Israel, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tents until Sodom. So he was in the vicinity of the city called Sodom, or in Hebrew, Sodom. And as the Torah once again foreshadows, the people of Sodom, of Sodom, were very evil and sinful against the Lord. And yet, and yet, Lot chose that for himself. Okay, I want to rewind a little bit. It's a, it's a very rich narrative. There's a lot to talk about. Um, so let me rewind for a moment and, and discuss some, some more details. Number one, on the surface, Avram, Abraham, is telling Lot, let's separate. Let's, let's, uh, let's leave each other. Right? You go your way, I go my way. This town ain't big enough for the both of us. We're not getting along. Let's just, let's just call, it, call it quits. Let's call this relationship quits on some level. Go right. If you go left, I'll go right. If you go right, I'll go left. Fine. The commentaries say, the commentaries add a bit of a twist. And they say, well, it's not exactly that. What Avram was saying to his nephew is, no matter where you go, and you're going to go on your own, because we are splitting, uh, we are um, you know, leaving each other. But wherever you go, I won't be too far. If you go left, I will go right, meaning I'll be at your right. I won't be right there, but I'll be adjacent. If you go right, I'll go left, which means I'll be nearby as well. So what Avram was hinting, or maybe he's even said it clearly to his nephew, was, look, we need to, we need to go our separate ways, but I'm never going to forget about you, and I'm never going to abandon you, and in a moment of crisis, in a moment of need, I will always be, I will, I will always be there with you. So, you know, it, I, I kind of want to liken this to parenting. And so hear me out for a moment here. You know, in parenting, there are different stages. There's a stage in which you keep the, the kid at home, Right? And you, tell, you give the kid all the rules, like you got to do this, you got to do that, right? And, and then there's a point in, in life when the child moves out. And the child goes on their own. Because they're no longer a child, they're now a growing, uh, a maturing human being. And in the process of maturity, you have to go your own way. You can't stay always under that, uh, in, in that space. Yes, it's comfortable and protective. I mean, I guess that could be argued, you know, depending on the child's perspective. It could be, you know, dominating and, and, and domineering. But nonetheless, it's a, it's a nurturing environment. But from the perspective of the child, there needs to be that, that growth. And that growth happens through independence. Independence means that you go your own way on some level. But a healthy parent will communicate to a child that although you are now growing into an independent adult, you should know I will always be here for you. In any way that you wish, in any way that I can, I'm here for you. Not in a controlling way or a domineering way. You have to do it my way. No. I trust you. I respect you. I love you. I'm always here for you. I'm giving you space. So on, on, a, on a very basic level, this is what Avram is telling Lot. He's telling his nephew. He's saying, you need your own space. You need to figure out your own life. I have my way, you have your own way, and that's, you know, and, and, and if we recognize that we're not exactly the same way, so I can keep on fighting it, and in the process fight you, I can, I can try to, you know, try to, you know, wring the behavior that I want to see out of you, I can try that, 
but it's not going to work. It's only going to create the, uh, um, animosity. It's only going to create more friction. So you go your own way, but I'm not abandoning you. I'm not saying you go your own way. I don't care anymore. No, I love you. I'll be here for you. You go to the left. I'll be right there to the right. You go to the right. I'll be there to the left. I will always be nearby because I love you and I care about you. And I know that you need independence. And that's how it is. And that's how it is in life. Now, parents don't control children. Parents cannot dictate the way a child lives. A healthy parent, at least, cannot do that. You raise your kids the best, the best, to the best of your ability. You give them the tools they need to na- they, that you believe they need to navigate. And then ultimately, they're going to make their own decisions and walk through life in their own way. And that's healthy. That's the way life works. Is that a problem? Is that a flaw? It's a feature. It's a feature. It's the way life works. Avram gets it. Lot is, is going to get it. <laughs> he's, he's learning. And that's it. Make sense so far? Checking in on the story. Yes? Make sense? Okay. Let's continue with the next communication. Oh, um, I'm sorry. Okay. And the last sentence that I still highlighted, verse 13. And the people of Sodom were very evil and sinful against the Lord. And that's where Lot chooses. He's expressing his independence. You know, out from under the wing of his uncle, of his righteous uncle Abraham, he's, you know, he's experimenting. He's experimenting. He's going to Sodom. He's, 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 he's going to the big city. Sin city. That's what's going on. He doesn't choose a, a, a docile place. He chooses the place where the people are very evil and sinful. Okay. He's going to have fun. He's going to enjoy life. Okay, that's, that's his deal. Avram doesn't stop him. He knows that at a certain point, you got to let go. But even wherever you are, I'm with you. This is, how to de- this is ideally how to deal with children, education, parenting, the whole gamut. Can't control someone. Love them. Guide them. Allow them to, to, to experience freedom. Let's continue verse 14. And the Lord said to Avram, after Lot had parted from him, so God says, to, after Lot leaves, God says to Avram the following, please raise your eyes and see. From the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, Tzaphona, Venegba, Vakedma, Vyama, look all around, panoramic view, 360 degrees. God says to Avram, look all around. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your seed to eternity. I promise, God says, I will give you this entire land that you're seeing. And I will make, remember the covenant. The covenant is always two promises throughout the Bible, throughout the five books, throughout the Torah. Two promises. Progeny, land. It's all about children and the land of Israel. Those are the two promises consistently. It's about more of the Jewish people and a space to call home. So God says, number one, the land I am giving to you. And promise number two, I will make your seed like the dust of the earth. So that if a man will be able to count the dust of the earth, so will your seed be counted. Just like you cannot, let me just say that in, in, uh, in, in easier terms. Just like no human being could ever count the dust of the earth, Right? Imagine you go to 
I mean, the earth, the earth is, is, is dust, is dirt. You can count every, every grain of dirt, impossible. Go to the beach. How many, how many um, grains of sand are there on the beach? More than 10, right? More than 100. It's a lot. So just like you cannot count the dust of the earth, so too you will not be able to count your seed, your children. The obvious question is, one second, there aren't that many Jews, right? Hold on, slow it down. I mean, they're countable. It's not like you know, uh, an infinite number. Relative to the other nations, it's small. So one way to look at it is, no, it says progeny, your seed. That could include also Ishmael and Esau, which give rise to, the, to Islam and Christianity, the other, the other religions that are coming from the other progeny of, uh, of, of Abraham. So you could say that. So that includes the whole world, essentially. I mean, not everybody, everybody, but a big, a big chunk is counted for. That's on one level. But even if we, speak, if we think Jewishly, you also have this idea. It's, there's, there's, when, when you talk about something counting, counting something. You can count quantitatively or qualitatively, right? So you can count with numbers or you can count with, with quality. Why the dust of the earth? The earth is very special. The earth is something that everybody steps on, but it also supports life. We can't live without the earth. I mean, on every level, <laughs> literally on every level. You can't live not on Earth. I mean, like we're, I mean, the Moon is not yet, and Mars is not yet a reality. But you can't live live on the Earth. But even beyond that, the Earth produces vegetation, which gives. I mean, without the Earth, life doesn't exist. So the same message here is God to Abram: Without your progeny, life won't be able to exist the way I want it to exist, right? Without that message, without the morality, without the ethics, without the values of Judaism, life doesn't look the same. So. It's an important message. It's an important message for us to recognize the, uh, the importance of Torah, Mitzvot, Judaism, etc. So this is what God tells Abraham, I promise you the land and I promise you progeny, children. So he says to Abraham, rise, rise, walk in the land to the length and to its breadth, for I will give it to you. He says, walk the land and almost with your footsteps, with every step that you take, you'll be, you know, kind of metaphorically claiming the land with every step that you take. And Abram pitched his tents, and he came and he dwelt in the plains of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Hebron, of course, is the place where ultimately he will bury his wife, Sarah. This is way down the line. And in the cave of Machpelah, which is, of course, another of the holy sites. So, so far... In this Torah portion, we read about Shechem, the holy city of Shechem, and the city, the holy city of Hebron, Hebron. And these are two holy cities. And you should know that today in Israel, these are two of the most hotly contested cities in the Promised Land. Nearly every, not nearly, every city that's mentioned in the Bible as a Jewish city is one of those contested cities. And it's not by act. It's not like ironic. It's like, oh, the irony, the specific cities that are mentioned as associated with Judaism are the ones that are contested. Golly, it's not so, it's not so random. It's, not so, it's because they've been, they've, they're, they're in the Torah as Jewish cities. That's part of the reason why there is a lot of, uh, lot of effort to try to 
kind of rewrite, rewrite the script. Anyway, Shechem, which is today called Nablus, by many, by some. The Shechem is a Jewish city. It's where Joseph, our, our patriarch Joseph, was buried. You should know, a few years ago, they desecrated Joseph's tomb. There was a riot, one of the intifadas, and they desecrated Joseph's tomb. Can you imagine Joseph, biblical Joseph, his tomb? It's, uh, it's, it's, very, it's, it's very disheartening. Hebron, of course, is a Hebron is a very uh, complicated city today as well. It's a lot of a lot of challenges, a lot of safety concerns, etc. But nonetheless, we this is this is the Torah's account. So Abraham is told that this land is yours. Walk around, get to know get to know it. Do a test drive, and uh, indeed, I will give it to your seed. Remember, this is before Abraham has a child. He does not have a child. Doesn't even, at this point probably despairs of having a child. And, uh, and God is telling him, your children are going to be many, so many you can't even count on both levels, and uh, they're going to inherit the, they're going to inherit this land. So it's it's a tremendous blessing. Um, some say that God waited till Lot left to give him this promise, this blessing. Right? If you notice, the chronology of the story is is Lot leaves. And then verse 14, and the Lord said to Avram, when? After Lot had parted from him. The Torah specifies. It could have just dropped the story and, and God said to Avram, raise your eyes, blah, blah, blah. No, it adds in, after Lot had parted from him. To tell us no, the, chron- the, chron- the chronology here is important. It's not just that the Torah is telling us one story and then another story. Well, Avram and Lot went their separate ways, and then God said to Avram about the promise of the land and the children. He said that after Lot had left. And the commentaries say it's part of, the, part of the reason, one of the reasons for this is because Lot was on some level a negative, somewhat of a, of a negative influence. So God did not have that type of communication as long as Lot was around. One could argue maybe also that God was telling Avram, um, that you, the progeny that I promise you will not be through your nephew. I'm not telling you that your other relatives will start, uh, you know, they, they, their kids will be the ones that I'm talking about. No. After Lot leaves, God says to Avram, you are going to have kids. If Lot was still around, he might have thought, oh, he means Lot. That's my child. It's my adopted son. He says, no, this is going to be your own progeny. And... Um, and that, is, and that is that. I don't know that he formally adopted Lot, but he certainly looked after him for a little bit. And um, this, is, this is a different promise. Okay, let's check in. Any questions or comments on the reading? Nope, makes sense? Yep. Okay. Very cool. Good, good, good. So here's the deal. Tomorrow... I have, a, um, I have another engagement that's going to take me all the way to 12.30, at least 12.30, maybe a few minutes later. So I'm like debating whether or not it makes sense to do a, a very late start DPP or we just postpone DPP, no DPP tomorrow, and we do a little bit more today. And I'm leaning toward the second approach just because... You know, you're going to be logging on late, and it just throws everyone's schedule off kilter. So we have now another 15 minutes. Let's jump into reading four. Let's see if we can uh, if we can do this today, so that we can 
you know, officially just call off tomorrow, and that way there's no, um, there's no, um, uh, you know, confusion or any, you know, missing information. Okay, so let's jump in to reading for Lech Lecha. The story continues. Now it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, the king of Shinar. This is, let me just tell you what's going on here. We're going to read about a, a regional war, maybe a world war at the time that, that occurred between five nations and four nations. The five kings against the four kings. So here we go. So it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, number one, Arioch, the king of Elasar, two, Kirdala uh, Omer, king of Elam, three, and Tidal, the king of Goyim, that's four, four kings. So they waged war, the four kings waged war with Bera, the king of Sodom, one, Birsha, the king of Gomorrah, two, Shinab, the king of Adma, three, Shem Eber, the king of Zeboim, which is four, and the king of Bela, which is Tsar, five. So the four kings went to war against the five kings. You would think the five kings would be stronger because, hey, five against four, the four are shorthanded. If it's hockey, you know, it's a man advantage. It's a king advantage, a nation advantage. Nonetheless, it doesn't always work like that in war. The four were actually very mighty. So the four kings initiated, instigated this war against the five. So all of these, all these joined in the valley of Sidim, which is the Dead Sea. So this war takes place in that area, in that part of the world. So for 12 years, they served Kirdala Omer. In other words, the five kings served the four kings for 12 years. And for 13 years, they rebelled. So this was a a long-term dispute. You know, you hear about countries that are at war with each other for decades. This was one of those. You have five nations against four nations or four against five. And for decades, you know, this one's on top and that one's rebelling and insurgencies and it's the whole deal. And in the 14th year, because they rebelled for 13, so in the 14th year, Kedalomer came and the kings who were with him, the four kings, and they smote the Rephaim in Ashrod Karnaim and the Zuzim in Ham and the Amim, no, sorry, Ham, not Ham, Ham, and the Amim in Shaveh Kiryatayim. So where these places are, I don't know exactly, but I do know that the four kings had had crushed the five kings for 12 years. For 13 years, there was this rebellion of the five against the four. And then in the 14th year, the four kings came and once again crushed the insurgency. Let's continue with verse number six. And the Chorites in the mountain say in their mountain Seir until the plain of Paran, which is alongside the desert. So that's where these battles took place. And they returned and came to Ain Mishpah, which is Kadesh, and they smote the entire field of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Chatzatzon Tamar. And the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Tzvayim and the king and the king of Bela, the five kings. These are the five kings which is Tsoar, came forth, and they engaged them in battle in the valley of Sidim. So the four kings, the four kings had crushed the five. The five were now trying to 
once again overcome. And so they battled with Kirdul Omer, the king of Elam, and Tidal, the king of Goyim, and Anarapha, the king of Shinar, and Arach, the king of Elasar, four kings against the five. Yeah, it's, it's, everyone's names is being repeated multiple times. The point is, this was, this was the battle. Now, he says, the valley of Sidim was composed of many clay pits. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell there. And the survivors fled to a mountain, which means that once again, the four kings were crushing the five. So the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah were part of the five king side, and they fell in those clay pits. In other words, the terrain was treacherous, and that was what was part of the downfall of the, uh, of the five kings. By the way, it's not the first time, or maybe it is the first time, but that wouldn't be the last time that a war was won based on terrain, right? Many wars, world wars, not many, but war, many wars were won based on terrain, based on you know, navig- weather, terrain, etc. Let's continue. So the four kings took all the possession of Saddam and Gomorrah and all their food, and they departed. So they conquered, basically, Saddam and Gomorrah. And they took captives. They took everybody. And they took Lot and all his possessions, the son of Abram's brother, and they departed. And he was living in Sodom. Remember, Lot was living in Sodom. But they, when the four kings came in, Sodom was one of the five kings' nations, and they, they, they took people as POWs, prisoners of war. And one of the POWs was Lot and all of his stuff. They took them captive. And the fugitive came. Who's the fugitive? Og, the giant, came. Why is he called a fugitive? He escaped the war, or he escaped the flood. He held onto the side of the ark. I've told you this uh, several times before, right? He was the guy that held onto the side of the ark. So he's called the fugitive, or because he ran away from this war, from the midst of the, the world war, he, he escaped. So the fugitive came and he told Abram the Hebrew, Avram Ivri. And he was living in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshkol, and the brother of, Ar- of Aner, who were Abram's con- uh, confederates. So he told Abram about his nephew being kidnapped or taken POW. And Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, Lot. And he armed his trained men, those born in his house, in his house, 318. So he gathered 318 men with him and he pursued them until done. Basically, he chased after the four kings with 318 men. Not a, not, not a big army. But the truth is, our sages say that 318 is the numerology of Eliezer. The word, the name Eliezer equals 318. So who is Eliezer? Abraham's trusted servant. So according to that opinion, it says he didn't even take 318 men. He took the man whose numerology numbered 318, Eliezer. So it was Abraham, according to this tradition, Abraham and one other guy. And these guys were bent on rescuing Abraham's nephew, Lot. So verse 15. And he divided himself against them at night, he and his servants, and smote them, and pursued them until Chova, which is to the left of Damascus. And he restored all the possessions. So basically, he, he, he beat back the four kings. The five kings couldn't, but Abraham and his trusty servants or servant beat them back, drove them back. And he restored all the possessions and also load his brother. And his possessions he restored, so he rescued his nephew. And also the women and the people, all that were taken captive, he basically went in and got everyone freed. 
And the king of Sodom came out toward him. The, the, the king of Sodom was the, on the side that was losing before Abraham got into the, He was the five king's side. They were the ones under the four kings. So the king of Sodom came out toward him, toward Abraham, after his return from smiting Kedar Omer. Omer. And the kings who were with him to the valley of Shva, which is the valley of the king. So he came out to, to meet Avram, the hero. And Machid Tzedek, the king of Shalem. Machid Tzedek, by the way, is according to our tradition, was Shem, the son of Noah, who was still alive then. Remember Shem, the oldest son of Noah, who's the righteous son? Um, the Semites, the father of the Semites, yeah? Machid Tzedek, the king of Shalem. Where was Shalem? Salem. What was Shalem? Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim. Shalem is Yerushalayim. City of, complete city. Machid Tzedek, Shem, who was the king or the priest, <coughs> of, of, of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a holy place even then. He brought out bread and wine to Abraham, and he was a priest. He, Melchizedek, was also a priest. Not just a king, he was a priest to the Most High God. That indicates that Shem was a monotheist, right? It says the most, God, most High God, that means the one God above, God Almighty. So he was a monotheist, he was a big knacker, a big macher, a big uh, important guy in Jerusalem. So he, he, he meets Avram, who had been his former disciple. I mentioned this last week, I think, or maybe earlier this week, how Abram had studied at the yeshiva of Shem and Aver. Abram had studied in the academy of Shem and his great-great-grandson, Aver. So Shem knew who Avram was. Avram had a mission from God to spread out monotheism and to teach it to the masses and all that stuff, that was his unique mission, Abraham's. But here Abraham gets involved in this larger um, regional battle, regional war. Next thing you know, you have this reunion, Machitzedek and Avram, and he blessed him. Shame, the son of Noah, blessed Abraham. I mean, when you know the characters... Malki Tzedek. Oh, what is, why is it called Malki Tzedek? You know what that means? Malki Tzedek? What's Melech? The word Melech. What, what does the word Melech mean? King. King. And what's Tzedek? Like Tzedek? What's Tzedek? Righteous. Righteous? Malki Tzedek means the righteous king. So who's the righteous king? It's not a name. It's righteous king. Who's the righteous king? Shame. Malki Tzedek, the king of Shalem. He was the righteous king. <laughs> so he blessed him. He blessed Abram and he said, Blessed be Avram to the Most High God. Who possesses heaven and earth. In other words, blessed are you to God, God who possesses heaven and earth. This is a monotheist. This is not a this is not an idolatry. This is not an idolatry. It's not a pagan king. This is a monotheistic king. This is shame, who believes in monotheism, believes in one God, right? The most high God. He blesses him. He says, Hashem, Hashem bless you. Hashem who possesses heaven and earth. Hashem who runs everything, the whole show. This is a monotheist. Why wasn't shame? Avram, why wasn't he? Because he was insular. He stayed. He had his own yeshiva. He did his own thing. He had his own beliefs. Avram was the first guy. I mentioned this previously. Avram was the first one to go viral with this. And, and the blessing continues. Shame continues. And blessed be the Most High. He gives Abraham a blessing. And then he blesses God. And blessed be the Most High God who has delivered your adversaries into your hand. And he gave him a tithe from all. So different opinions of, of who gave who a tithe. The simple, the simple understanding is that Abraham, Avram, gave the king, the priest, 
gave shame, Malkit Tzedek, same guy, gave shame, the son of Noah, gave him the tithe. Like uh, later on in the temple, we would give the Kohen, the priest, the tithe. So he was a priest, he was a holy man, so he gave him a tithe from all that he had recaptured from the enemy. That's one way of, of seeing it. Let's look at Rashi and see if what Rashi uh, shares about this. Here we go. Rashi says, Abraham gave Makitzedek a tithe from all that was his because, as I just mentioned, he was considered a priest. Yeah, I know, I know, it wasn't yet. Officially, he wasn't officially a Kohen. But Rashi says, Lefishahaya Kohen. That's the, the Hebrew side. Look at the Hebrew, Kohen. Kohen's priest. He was a priest. On some level, not, no, I, the priesthood begins from Aaron, the high priest, the brother of Moses. I know. But on some level, he was a priest. Before priests were priests, he was a priest. So, Abraham gives him a tenth. Meiser gives him a tithe. Anyway, always good practice. All right, always good practice to give of what we get. All right, so that takes, that takes us through a perfect time, and it takes us through tomorrow's reading as well, so we have no worries about tomorrow. We won't be DPPing tomorrow. We'll be back on Thursday. So what messages can we take from today's double readings, from three and four? Well, here are my thoughts. Number one, I'm just going to scroll back to three just to, to remind ourselves of it. So number one, it's important to recognize when the, when the, I'm still looking for that word, when the cracks first begin to appear, right? When the, when the first signs of compromising the integrity of something, when it first begins, the first, you know, uh, fissures in something. It's important to see that and to know when to, you know, step in and create some space or step out and create some space in order for things to be healed. It's not good to keep on pushing. You gotta know when to, when to pull back. Or actually before that, first of all, you gotta, it's important to recognize where relationships are, whether it's parents and children, whether it's um, friends or neighbors or community. It's important to pick up on the clues, number one. Number two, don't wait for the other one to, to take action. If something needs to be tweaked, you be the one to tweak it first. In the case of Avram, he felt the best tweak would be to create some space. I still love you, but I want to respect your space. You do things differently than I. So instead of us trying to force each other's ways down each other's throats, let's agree to disagree. You go your way, I'll go my way, but I'll always be around. I always care about you. So again, the message here is about the importance of proactively seeking to preserve our relationships. And the idea of respect and creating distance. You're not always going to be able to dictate to the other person what they do and how they do things. It's important to allow for them to have the room to make their own choices and their own mistakes. After all, we made mistakes. Why can't we let someone else make mistakes? Because you want the best for them. Okay, sometimes the best is to let them know that you'll always be there for them, but you're not going to do it for them. Um, <coughs> the next piece, the next lesson I don't know if it's a lesson, the blessing of God to Avram about the land and about the, the children likens Abraham's children to the dust of the earth, which might seem to be, number one, not accurate quantitatively and also maybe a little disrespectful. Dust of the earth. On the contrary, the dust of the earth, the earth has the greatest 
treasures, the greatest power, the greatest power of sustaining life and growth and treasures, literal treasures, metaphorical treasures, it's all on the earth. And that also reminds us, historically, even though historically Jews have been trampled on, at the end of the day, there's something special, a treasure, we call that Torah, Yiddishkeit, etc. And finally, in the last reading that we did, reading four, <coughs> it talked about the war, and it talked about Avram going into the battle that wasn't his, it wasn't his war, but he entered it to rescue his nephew. In other words, if we want to come full circle in the story, Avram delivered on his promise. He told his, his nephew, wherever you go, I'll always be at your side. In other words, I'll always be there for you when, when you need me. In his moment of need, when Lot was taken as a, as a prisoner of war, Avram was there to um, heroically fight for him and to rescue him. <coughs> so that's that. Now one more thing. Who was the one that told Avram about his nephew? So I told you it was the fugitive. The Torah says the fugitive. It was Og. And according to the commentaries, Og did so with an ulterior, with an ulterior motive. As you may recall, Sarah, Sarah, or Sarai at that point, her name hadn't been changed yet, was exceedingly beautiful. Well, that didn't escape the eyes of one jolly green giant named Og. Og had noticed the beauty of Sarah, or Sarai, and he wanted to marry her, but she was married. So his ulterior motive was to send Abram into the fray, into the war, he would certainly be killed trying to rescue his nephew. Like, what are the odds that he would survive that? And then, being widowed, he would swoop in, as only a giant can, lumber in, swoop in gracefully, and sweep her feet, her off her feet, and he would marry her, and they would live happily, after, uh, happily ever after. Well, it didn't work out that way for Og, because Abraham not only survived, but he conquered, rescued Lot, and he was the hero. You imagine... Right? Imagine um, Og's dismay and, and frustration when Avram emerges victorious with that ticker tape parade. Is that how you say ticker tape? Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Rabbi, Og is a very intriguing character, right? I mean, he just comes in and out here and there in weird circumstances. Totally, totally. Just a floater. Really Total floater, yeah. He becomes a king later on. Moses kills him. The whole deal, yeah. He's righteous, he's not righteous, he has good intentions, not good intentions, it's crazy. I mentioned this many times before, Moses, later on, when he was battling Og, was afraid, because Og had this merit of this mitzvah of saving Lot's life, because he was the one that told Avram that his, his nephew's life was in danger. And Moses was afraid, well, that's a, you know, saving a life is a big merit, even though, it was an alter, even though there was an ulterior motive, and the message is, you know, even when we do a mitzvah for the wrong reasons, it's still a mitzvah. So at the end of the day, Og saved Lot's life because he told Avram about it. Avram might not have known. It's not like he tuned into like the, you know, CBS News, um, whatever, the broadcast. It's not like he was watching a Twitter feed. Like, oh, Lot's captured, you know, um, SOS signals. He didn't know. How would he have known if not for, for Og? So Og, turns out Og saved Avram's life, uh, Lot's life for the wrong reasons. But the credit goes to him ultimately. And that tells us the power of a mitzvah, the power of a good deed. Even when we have not, not the purest of intentions, a good deed is a good deed. Let not our own selfishness get in the way of our performance of a mitzvah. We should never tell ourselves, well, if I can't do it purely, 
If I have an agenda, then I shouldn't do it. It's, it taints the experience. Do it anyway. Right? You can work on yourself another time. But a mitzvah comes, you feel proud about the mitzvah, do it anyway. Don't cut off the nose to spite the face, so to speak. Don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Don't say, well, if it can't be pure, then, then, then either all the way or no, none the way. Do it impure. Do it. Let's, let, as, as Nike said, just do it. Just do the mitzvah, even if it's not perfect. Mark. Yeah, two things. <clears throat> um, where it says, uh, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. Yeah. I know you mentioned this, but it, Rashi goes in a little bit more. Um, he says, uh, like dust, dust is scattered throughout the world. But Rashi says here, but if there's not dust in the world, there are no trees or crops in the world. Um, but then he goes further. He goes further. He says, but in the days of the Messiah, the Jewish people are compared to sand, which sets everyone's edge on everyone's teeth on the edge. So will so will Israel annihilate and blunt the entire world? Uh, in other words, all those who antagonize them. That's in, that's understood here, right. as it says, and to him, will, in other words, to the Messiah, will be the blunting of the nations. I thought that was interesting. Interesting, yeah. So dust is a little softer than sand. Sand is a little bit more coarse, yeah. right? And so the idea is that in the Messianic era, and I, we, there's different ways to read that. You can read that as a harsh thing or as a more of a, a kind of a realistic thing that when the truth emerges, everyone will be like, oh, okay, well, there you go. I guess I'll just adjust and modify some things. And that's a correction. That's like a cutting, if you will, you know, a correction of, uh, of the way things are. Like, oh, I thought uh, this was going to happen. All right, that happened. Right? Or I thought this was the, the right way to do it. All right, that's the right way to do it. It's a correction. Good. I like it. All right, so let's close it out here for, uh, for today. Let's close it out here for today. We'll pick it up in two days. Can All right. I, yes. One more thing. Sure. This is not in commentary, but it, but it occurs to me. Where it says, uh, uh, Abraham says, uh, if you go to the left, I'll go to the right, whatever. He says, Rashi says, wherever you may dwell, I will not distance myself from you, but I will stand for you as a protector and a helper. Right. And what I thought about was during the Holocaust, the Jews were told to the left, which was to the gas chamber, mm. as I understand it, and right. to the right, which was to slave work, but not, not the gas chamber. But in other words, from that context, it says, wherever you may dwell, I will not distance myself from you. In other words, even those who died will not be distanced from those from those who were living. That's what occurred to me. Interesting. Uh, and Interesting. I will stand as, as your protector. Interesting. Uh, uh, and a helper. Interesting. Yeah. And so that's that just occurred to me. Yeah, that, yeah. I, I, I like that. In other words, that, that even those who did not survive have a relationship, certainly in the, the hearts and in the legacy. Those yeah. who live will, will protect them. Right, yeah. right. Or right, could work both ways, right? Either advocating yes, yeah. from on high or from below to live out the legacy and the memories. Beautiful, beautiful. Very touching. I like that. The Medrash of Mark. Mark's Medrash. I like, I'm, I'm, I, it's, it's beautiful. Donna, you got something? Oh, oh okay. <laughs> Got it. Oh, I, th- I, saw, I saw the mic open, so I thought maybe I had. All right. Great to see everybody. Joy, Olia, Donna, Sarah, Mark. Great to study together. Um, don't forget, tomorrow, no DPP at 12, but tomorrow night, an incredible new, brand new Torah Studies class, 7.30, in person at Chabad or on Zoom. Join us tomorrow night at 7.30. Thursday night, Curious Tales of the Talmud. 
And next week, wow, do we have a week. Action-packed week. Hot Topics Monday night. Some of the most, you know, most captivating modern questions, technology, medicine, um, gender, the ecology, the, the environment. So many modern questions through a Jewish halachic lens. That's Monday night. Six-week course begins. Hot Topics. And Tuesday night, we have the incredible event with Judge Ruchi or Judge Rachel Fryer, the first Orthodox Jewish woman to be appointed in a public position in the United States, a public, uh, you know, an official role in government. She's an incredibly strong person, incredibly just challenging. The a lot of conceptions about Orthodoxy and women within Orthodoxy. This is going to be an incredible event. You don't want to miss it. Tuesday night, 8 p.m. in townjewishacademy.org. Join us. All right, that's it for right now, and we'll see you guys soon. All right, take care, everybody. Thank you, Rabbi. Pleasure, pleasure. See you guys soon.